Let's go ahead and go before the Lord once again in prayer. Oh Lord God, you are mighty and merciful. And even now as we come to you in prayer during this time of worship, our hearts are prostrate before you. You created this world and you have designed and ordained all things in our lives with perfect providence, perfect goodness. And we know that in your providence you have given to us our mothers. And for some of us we know and we come with deep gratitude, with deep joy. For you have given us mothers who have loved us and cared for us, walked with us and taught us how to live, how to live for Christ. For others of us, our mothers, when we think about them or it just causes mixed emotions because our relationship with our mother is not easy or was not easy or perhaps never existed. Yet this too is your providence. So we ask that you would meet those in our church in those situations. Meet them in their pain. Heal their hearts where they are wounded. Soften their hearts where they are hardened. Enable them to forgive and love. We pray for mothers in this room on a day like today. And we ask that you would give them strength when they are weak. And give our mothers wisdom when they are unsure. Patience with the many demands that are placed upon them. And the love, oh God, we pray for a deep love uh, that they may have for those you, you've given them to nurture. Cause them to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we know that there are others in this room who long to be mothers and long to have children and yet are unable to do so. And so we pray, oh God, that you would comfort them and you would help them to trust in you despite some of those unfulfilled longings. Cause them to take joy in knowing that you never stop loving us or having our best in mind. And on this morning, we pray for the children who are waiting to be adopted, waiting to be fostered. We ask that you give to these children peace and comfort as they wait. And we pray for a loving people to surround them, to show them their worth as image bearers and the love of Jesus that is held out to them. And Lord, we do not cease to pray for our missionaries, particularly Lawrence, as he recovers from his surgery. We ask that you would help him and his family to continue to trust in your sovereign hand. Remind them of how you are with them and how you will never forsake them. Give them wisdom to navigate all their future details, how it will impact their ministry we pray for a swift recovery. We pray for wisdom from the doctors to be able to help Lawrence in his infection, in his heart, and 
we ask that you would glorify yourself. And now as we come to the preaching of your word, we ask that you would cause us to grow in a, in a sweet and quaking wonder of who you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. And if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Listen to God's word. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick the darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. How do you respond to someone when they give you a set of commands, when they tell you how you ought to live your life? I imagine that if your manager at work told you to do something, you might smile and you might nod, but perhaps on the inside you're groaning. And I, I imagine that if your parents tell you to do something, maybe your first response is you just pretend that you didn't hear them. Or maybe you would say and start bargaining with your parents but my brother didn't do this. Like, why do I have to do this? Can I do this later? Maybe there would be that kind of attitude, that kind of response. If your friend tells you something, uh, you might say, who do you think you are? Uh, you're not the boss of me. Well, what is the proper response when someone gives you a set of instructions? More importantly, how should you respond when the person giving you those instructions and giving you those commands is God himself, and he gives you 10 of them. 
That is the situation that we find ourselves in this morning as we return back to our exposition in the book of Exodus. If you've been with us in Exodus this past year, all we've done is really just go through the Ten Commandments in this past year. But you'll recall that God has already delivered his people out of Egypt, and he has redeemed them, he has rescued them, and God says to his people Israel, he says, you are my treasured possession. You are my people. You will be my kingdom of priests. And now I'm going to give you the family rules now that you are part of my family. So from Mount Sinai, God gave them the Ten Commandments. And the question is, how will the people respond? How will Israel respond to these Ten Commandments? And that's a question for us. How will we respond to the Ten Commandments listed in our Bibles? From our passage this morning, we see that the proper response to God's command is, at least what we see this morning, is twofold. Fear God and draw near to Him in worship. Fear God and draw near to Him in worship. Let's take a look at the, those two things this morning. Let's look at that first response to the presence of God and His commandments. And it's fear. It's fear. Uh, verse 19 tells us that Israel is afraid, and certainly they are afraid because of all the sights and all the sounds that are before them. Uh, the smoke billows up from, the, from Mount Sinai. Fire is blazing from peak to peak, and thunder is rumbling, and claps of thunder all over the place. The ground is quaking beneath them. Now, back in chapter 19, God had set limits around the mountain. Uh, earlier, before the Ten Commandments came, before God spoke to the people, the, God had set limits and said, these are the boundaries, and you shall go no further than these boundaries, people of Israel. Because maybe there's a tendency to get too close. But after God speaks these Ten Commandments, that is, that is no longer a problem, is it? By the time God finishes giving his law, those precautions are no longer necessary because the people are literally shook. They are trembling in fear. They are quaking in their sandals, aren't they? Notice their threefold response. An emotional response, they're afraid. A physical response, they're trembling. And a spatial response, they stand far off. Israel is overcome with fear. But notice it's not simply about the display, this uh, supernatural kind of pyrotechnics that they see on this mountain. That's not the only reason why they are afraid. No, they fear for God spoke to them. He speaks in his law, and they fear, they understand God calls his people to love him and to love their neighbors. And they fear because they see how the Ten Commandments are not merely outward actions, but inward attitudes. And they begin to grasp something. 
they began to grasp the character of God and who He is from these commandments. They began to grasp that God is laying claim on their lives in every aspect of their lives, worship and their time and their possessions and their bodies and their thoughts and their speech, everything. God's Word comes, and they're not hardened by God's Word. God's Word comes, and they're not indifferent to God's Word. God's Word comes, and they're not rebellious to God's Word. No, God speaks. They fear. Indeed, they cry out to Moses to be their mediator. They say, you speak to us. We don't want God to speak to us. You speak to us, speak to us, Moses, because if, if God keeps speaking to us, we're going to die. Now, we might think that such fear of God, that such, this, this kind of fear is inappropriate. We might be even offended that they're afraid to be put to death by God. After all, doesn't Israel know that they've been redeemed? Don't they know that they are God's treasured possession, just as God had told them earlier in chapter 19? Yet in Deuteronomy 5.28, God says this about their request. He says, they were right in all that they had spoken. God's evaluation about the people's fear is that they are right to fear. The testimony of Scripture is that Israel was right to be afraid, and they were right to ask for Moses to be their mediator. Now, this can be hard for us to grasp these days. Uh, we can say that we're a fearful people, perhaps. Uh, we fear what's going to happen with our finances. We fear the trajectory of our lives and where it's going to go. We fear the unknown. We fear getting sick, or we fear crime. There's all sorts of things we fear, and yet at the same time, it seems in vogue these days to have little reverence or fear or awe of people who are in authority. Isn't it popular these days to refuse presidential invitations or to yell at professors at university? Even when I was in seminary, there was a student, now Grant, let me, let me tell you, seminary is a place where people go to be trained to be pastors, okay? So we're there in seminary, we're in class, and one of the students says, hey, Dr. T, when can I call you Bob? Mind you, Dr. Robert Thomas was a New Testament scholar. He writes commentaries for a living, who probably forgot more Greek than we would ever remember. And this guy says, when can I call you Bob? But we live in a time when people are uncomfortably, maybe inappropriately familiar and disrespectful of authorities. And that makes it very hard for us to even to begin to understand fearing God. I mean, God, I mean, isn't it your job to love me? But look at what Moses says in verse 20, and this is very important in understanding the fear of God. Moses says to the people what? Do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Now this 
is a confusing verse. If it doesn't make you feel confused, then you haven't read it slowly enough. Moses says, don't be afraid. And then be fearful. What? What are you talking about, Moses? Which is it? But this is a very important concept for us to understand. It's an underpinning, I think, of Christianity. Moses, and I think the whole of Scripture, has essentially, and very simply put, two categories for this word fear. There must be a kind of fear that we ought not to have when approaching God. And there must be another that we ought never to lack if we are to approach God. So as Christians, we have to be able to deal with those two realities and those two categories. There is a fear God wants to banish from you, and at the same time, there is a fear without which you should not dare to come to God. You must fear, but not every kind of fear is appropriate. Maybe I can put it this way, there's a difference between being frightened of God, Christian, and fearing God. One is sinful and the other appropriate. Now, what does it mean to have a sinful kind of fear? It is the fear of God that James tells us about in the book of James, in chapter 2, where the demons believe God and they shudder. They are terrified. It is the fear that Adam had when he sinned and he hid from God. In other words, sinful fear is the kind of fear where you fall away from God, but you, it, drives you, it drives you away from Him. It is the fear that is dreading and cowering and retreating from God. In fact, 1 John 4.18 tells us this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So there is a fear that is to be cast out, there's a kind of fear that is to be cast out. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So Martin Luther writes about this kind of fear God does not want his children to have. He says, it is when Christ is depicted as a grim tyrant, a furious and stern judge who demands much of us and imposes good works as payment of our sin. This is the kind of fear that causes us to retreat from God. In fact, in 2 Kings 17.29, it describes how the people, it says, feared the Lord, and then they went to go serve other gods. Because they, this kind of fear of God caused them to run away. But that is not what God desires. God does not visit his people to discourage them or to frighten them or to fill them with dread. He has good purposes for them. Rather, God wants a fear that drew his people closer to him. And this is the consistent testimony of Scripture. I was just reading this morning from Psalm 25. It says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who, what? Fear him. Or Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Psalm 86-11, which says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Jeremiah 33, 9 says, they shall fear and tremble. Why? Because of all the goodness 
and all the prosperity I provide for it. Luke 1.50, this is Mary, and she says, His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. In other words, there is a right fear of the Lord that causes us to lean towards God because of his goodness. Now, sometimes people like to juxtapose the two things about loving God and fearing God. They seem like that those two things are opposites. Uh, Sometimes we might think of a person and we might imagine them and say, oh, they really, really love God, but you know what? They need a little dose of like fearing God in their lives. And sometimes we might look at a person and maybe in a counseling situation and say, oh, they have a lot of fear of God, but what they really need is a dose of the love of God in their lives. But the testimony of Scripture is not like that. Instead, the Bible seems to indicate that as we grow in our love for God, we grow in right fear of God. Those things go together. Familiarity with God breeds fear. We don't fear God because of a punishment, like it says in 1 John 4:18, Christians. Not that kind of fear, but a Christian's fear increases because we see more and more of the goodness and the splendor of God, the grace of God. True and right fear of God is this full-orbed revelation of himself in all his grace, all his glory. It is when we encounter this living, omniscient, righteous God in such a way that we cannot contain ourselves with his beauty and we sing things like, how great thou art. When we see his perfection and we are overwhelmed and it causes our hearts to quake, not to run away from him, but the dread of ever leaving him. And so we must ask ourselves if we fear God like this. You see, church, too often we treat God like a trifle. Boys and girls, do you know what a trifle is? You know what that is? It's not a dessert. It is a dessert, but it's not a dessert. And trifle means it's something that's an airy substance, light, airy, nothing, vapor. It's the foam on the top of your hot chocolate. But the fear of God means that he is not to be taken lightly, carelessly, casually. Yet too many of us treat God like a trifle. Oh, he's that extracurricular activity that I get to do on Sunday mornings. On our weekends, this is what we get to if we get to it in our spare time. Jesus is that sprinkle on our cupcakes. And there's no fear, no weightiness for God and the, and the things of God. Why is that? Because we aren't familiar with him enough. Because we are not growing in our love for him. When we are growing in our love for him, the fear of God will follow. You know, uh, I imagine that it's the difference between climbing any old raggedy hill and climbing Half Dome. You know, when you climb up a hill, you kind of look at it, it doesn't seem that impressive. You're like, ah, I'll just go up any which way I want to go up. I can zigzag up, I can jump up, I can skip up this hill. It doesn't really matter. But when you get into Yosemite Valley and you, you, you come into that valley and you look up and all of a sudden you see this giant Half Dome, you're attracted to it. Like, I want to be near that thing. And you get closer and closer. You're like, I want to climb. I want to be on that mountain. And then you get there and you realize, 
I'm not skipping rope up this mountain because those cables that are there are at 60 degree angles and I need to be holding on ever closer to the mountain. Because God is big. He's not a joke. He's not playing games. He's not to be trifled with. So brothers and sisters, love God and fear him. Nehemiah 1 says, delight to fear his name. Philippians encourages us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Beloved, I hope that over the past several months going through the Ten Commandments has caused our hearts to tremble. Not because we fear punishment from all the ways we fall short in the Ten Commandments and somehow God's going to zap us into oblivion. No. But because of the Ten Commandments, we've seen the wisdom of God. Through the Ten Commandments, we've seen the holiness of God, the mercy of God. God speaks and we ought to fear and respect and reverence God in such a way that we obey all his commandments with utmost seriousness and urgency. But here's the second response that we see this morning from our passage. Not only fear God, but draw near to him in worship. Here in verses 22 through 26, it becomes all the more clear that God does not want this fear to mean that we run away from him, but actually to come closer to him, except very carefully. We come close, but carefully. Uh, Verse 22 begins a section called the Book of the Covenant. It's called that because later in chapter 24, that's what it's going to be referred to which runs through the end of chapter 23. So this section in chapters 21 and 22 and 23, uh, what we're going to see over the next several weeks is really an extended impression of the Ten Commandments. It's the interpretation of the principles of the Ten Commandments into the very specific context of the original audience. And the first set of instructions given to Israel is that they ought to worship. Now we tend to think, that worship is measured by how we feel. Uh, how was worship today, you might ask somebody. And they'll say, well, the music was really good and really felt it today. Or, uh, you know, how was worship today? Well, you know, Pastor Steve was just okay. I didn't really feel it today. But actually, worship is not measured by how you feel. But how God feels, if I can put it anthropomorphically that way. What does God think about our worship? Now, it's good for us to be sincere and have experiences in worship, but there are still things that we must do and things that we must not do when we come before the Lord in worship. If we're to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Worship is engaging with God on the terms He proposes and the way He alone makes possible. And God gives a couple principles here of worship to to Israel in verses 22 through 26. First, they're to draw near to the true God in worship. I mean, God says, reiterates the first and second commandments here in verses 22 and 20, in verse 22, and he basically says, I spoke to you from heaven. You didn't see me. There was no image of me, so don't even think about making images of me with silver and gold when you worship me. God's transcendent. Second, not only do we see that kind of principle happening here in their worship, but second, they were to have, they were to draw near to God with, 
with gravity, with seriousness. Notice this strange section about altars and steps in verses 24 through 26. These altars Israel were to build were to be simple altars, piles of dirt or piles of stone. It was something they could just put together there in the wilderness. Now, these are temporary commands for the people of Israel. In just a few chapters, Israel's going to feel, they're going to receive much more detailed commands uh, to make a more elaborate altar, and that altar is going to be made of bronze, okay? But in the meantime, there was a need for an altar, and they were to commence worship as quickly as possible, and so they were to have these altars just made of just some dirt that you find on the ground or some stones that you find on the ground because the shape of it is not that important. Uh, Don't use tools on these stones if you use stones because we don't need it to be fancy. It doesn't need to be finished because you'll be tempted to look at the achievement of your hands. You're going to be tempted to be focused on that rather than the worship that is happening before God. You make something really beautiful and all of a sudden you start looking at everything instead of focusing on worship. So while there's a place for adornment and opulence, we see, certainly see that in Solomon's temple uh, later on in the history of Israel, but there's a place for simple and unadorned. Now verse 26, God says, you shall not go up by the steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Again, strange and out of place. But again, this is talking about the gravity and the dignity that is to happen in worship. Uh, Later in Israel's history, there would be an altar and they would have steps. And the priests were given actually linen garments to wear under their priestly robes. But in the ancient world at this time, they didn't have undergarments. All right? Instead, they wore free-flowing robes just to, you know. So not to put it too crassly, but, you know, you could be going up the steps on the temple and maybe there's a gust of wind, you know, uh, and there could be some indecent exposure. Now, outside of Genesis 2, nakedness is about what? It's about disgrace. It's undesirable. It's almost always a loss of dignity. Noah in his nakedness was a loss of dignity. The Ammonites humiliated David's ambassadors, remember, when they cut their tunics. Nakedness implies disgrace. And God here is not interested in not so much about what we wear or our dress code as instructing his people in how to worship in a way that is undistracted, focused with gravity, not casual. Intimate, yes, but not casual. You know, we live in a culture of almost militant informality. And I'm not just talking about what people wear. You know, gone are the days where we remember anyone's titles or call them Mr. or Mrs. or whatever it might be. And this creates a leveling effect, which is sometimes good and sometimes not so good. We prize informality and casualness, we, and sometimes that's great to have no fussy boundaries. Like, I love that my children can go to a wedding and they can pretty much dress whatever they want to wear. Yet at the same time, we struggle to even have categories to apprehend weight and glory and otherness. And we think that we should be able to go wherever we want, come as we are, come as we please. And it's one of the hardest things for us to grasp that we cannot approach God in any way we want. But third, we see this principle here, this last one here. 
This is the most important one. They were to draw near by a sacrifice. You see the good news that is offered here. Worship is not only on God's term, but is according to his provision. God speaks and he tells his people, draw near. Draw near with with gravity, with dignity. Don't get distracted with what the altar is like. Uh, What's most important is going to be these burnt offerings, these peace offerings that are offered upon the altar. Now, we don't have time to talk about these two sacrifices in detail, but just to let you know, the burnt offering is a sacrifice for sin, is is to make atonement for sin. And the peace offering is to demonstrate your fellowship with God. So let's not miss the important thing here. Worship is drawing near to God. How do you draw near to him? How do you draw near to him when his word makes you want to tremble? How do you draw near to God? How do you approach God with the right kind of fear? God says, you're standing far off. But through the provision of this altar, I will draw near to you and I will bless you. That's what he says in verse 24. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Worship is God's way, but the good news is that God makes a way. Do you see the grace of God in these instructions? He mentions these sacrifices immediately after the Ten Commandments. God gave his people the Ten Commandments for all of life, and he knows that the fear of the Lord means that they will want to follow these Ten Commandments, and he also knows that they're going to fail. And they might have a fear that causes them to run away. So he provides a way that they might draw near with gravity and with gladness. He says, do not fear. I know that you need a way to draw near. I know you need an altar. I know you need a sacrifice. You need a burnt offering for your sins. You need a peace offering to have fellowship with me. And that's when we begin to realize that God has always made it, has always provided and made a way for people to draw near to him. He did it in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. And God clothed them with a sacrifice. There was an altar again after the great flood. The world had been judged for its wickedness, but Noah was saved. And when he set foot on dry land, he made a sacrifice to God. The patriarchs, they all built altars. And Moses would as well, but there is no more need for Moses. No more need for altars. Because all those were preparing the way for Jesus, the perfect mediator, who himself is the altar and who himself is the burnt offering and peace offering. Do not fear, for God put forward his son as a propitiation for our sins. Fear God because the holy, righteous, omnipotent, loving, and merciful God sent his son Jesus to be crucified in an atoning sacrifice on the altar of God. He is that burnt offering made for our atonement for sins. He is the fellowship offering by which we may have fellowship with God. So what? So we rejoice and we tremble at these truths. 
for whatever sins we've committed, whatever blatant violations of the Ten Commandments and whatever inward sins of lovelessness or idolatrousness or covetous heart. Jesus died on the cross to save all those who would repent and place their faith in the work of Christ. Let us rejoice. Let us tremble at this awesome God where there is salvation for every sinner who trusts in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. And, how, and Father, we confess how often when you speak, we are not quick to listen. How often we, you speak and there is no quaking joy within our hearts from what we hear and what we read. And yet, Lord, you are always drawing your people to yourself. Those who are in Christ, you love. And Father, we pray for any who are here this morning who do not yet know you. And we pray that they would have the appropriate fear, that you would give them, open their eyes to fear you and come close. See the beauty that is found in Christ to repent and to draw near to you for the